I am a sinner. If it's not one thing, it's another. Uh, I've been um, in this sermon series this semester. This particular sermon is uh, such an interesting one for me because it is, and we'll get into this in the middle of the sermon tonight, but it is at once the most obvious thing, the thing everybody in here knows, and yet it is probably the thing we resist the most. Uh, we could sing a song like, I'm a sinner, if it's not one thing, and it's another. Some of you maybe in resistance kept your arms crossed and didn't say anything, I don't know. But, but many people in the room sing that as if it were true, but if I were to say to you, you're a sinner, you would be offended. You know, that is an interesting dynamic. And uh, one of the things that so um, pierces my heart with this sermon is how often people get abused with poor teaching on this. Um, there are many churches and religious groups that can, that can gather people into a room, and because of the fact that we all feel so dang ashamed and isolated and broken in our own ways, people could stand on a stage and say, you suck and you're worthless and you're horrible, and it's just because of God's goodness that he even considers you. And it is just because of God's goodness that he considers you. But he actually loves you. That was last week. That was a lot of what I was trying to talk about last week. And, and, and I want to, tr but the, the trick is there's another sort of teaching, I suppose, which is that there's nothing wrong with you. You're a snowflake. And you're amazing. And just you do you. And, you know, and, and, and that does not take into account so much of the world. On one hand, we don't take into account the goodness and the beauty in the world. On the other hand, we don't take into account the brokenness and fallenness in the world. And so we're going to try to talk about sin tonight in a way that invites us into a better story. First, I want us to read some scripture together. We'll pray and we'll get into the sermon. Our scripture reading tonight comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 51, beginning in verse 1. This is King David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me Hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, send your spirit that the words in my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, often growing up, someone would tell me that the sky is the limit, that I could do anything that I set my mind to, or that I would be somebody someday which is a terrible, which is like a great insult, but it's a terrible compliment. Uh, what's it mean about today? Anyway, um, often this affirmation was from my mom. 
Uh, I love my mom. Uh, she wanted me to believe that, and she wanted to believe, I think, maybe, maybe even more than I wanted to believe, she wanted to believe that I could rise above her lot in life. Other times it was from my teachers who probably knew my home life was a bit chaotic, but who nevertheless saw the spark of something in me and wanted to do their part in seeing me fly. Unsurprisingly, I never ever heard an athletic coach tell me I could do anything. Uh, each one of these attempts, though, to affirm me had quite the opposite impact. I don't know if you guys can relate to this or if you've heard people affirm you in these ways, but it had quite the op- opposite impact. I often felt misunderstood or I felt pressure. Like I would let people down. And the more someone tried to encourage me, the more pressure that I felt because I knew in my bones that I could not do anything that I set my mind to. And in part because of those very bones, I would never in fact fly. Therefore, my limit is far less than the sky, you see? We live in a culture right now of unbridled approval. You do you, which is now old. It's almost cliche. It's so boring to say because it's so obvious in our culture. We don't want to tell anyone that they can't do something or that they aren't something. And if you think you can fly, who am I to tell you no? You can see, I hope, how unkind that untruth is to someone who cannot actually fly. How unkind would it be for someone to think they can fly and try if they cannot? I hope that they don't take that approval too seriously and attempt it. But this is the cultural moment. It is what we affirm. We all agree in our various means of communication, and not one of us really believes it. Last week, we spoke of God making only good things. Everything God makes is good. The foundational truth about each and every one of us and each and every thing far, flung far and high across the cosmos is that we were made good. If you were here, maybe you remember that I spoke about the great surprise of encountering the goodness of my firstborn and how it floored me that this creation or this creature who looked quite horrible and made despicable noises and had to that point largely just been a great cost to my wife and I in a number of ways, this little creature was wonderful and worthy of love. Similarly, last night I was talking to my oldest daughter about how crazy it is that nine years ago she didn't exist. There wasn't an absence in the world. The world was full, and then she was made, and now it would be a terrible injustice if she didn't exist. Now there would be an absence. That we simply exist is just stunning. Each and every one of us is a great might-not-have-been but we are. And because we are, we are good. And because we are good, we are worthy of love. Full stop. And it put her right to sleep. She did, however, have a grin, and I call that a win. Many of us have growing up hearing and believing that some things might not be good. If there's a creator, perhaps he made some things poorly or accidentally. Maybe he didn't mean to do that. And of course, we don't think that I said this last week about trees and stars. We think that about ourselves. There is a better story, the true story of God and you in the cosmos, and that story is that God makes all things good, and that includes you. The true story of who you are doesn't begin in your brokenness or your sin. It begins with the good fact that the good God made the good you. And yet, Even as I preached that sermon last week, I could feel a palpable resistance in the room. If God made all things good, then why fill in the blank? 
We ask this question because, in the words of uh, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, sin is something which can be seen in the streets. I think, though, we see it in ourselves more clearly than we see it in the streets. Malcolm uh, Muggeridge said it this way. I think we got a quote up there, maybe. The depravity, this is an English journalist, uh, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted. This we can all agree upon, we sin. We sin. In each generation across the ages and across the globe, we use our good lives to harm and not love others. Over and over and over again. And so certain is this fact that when I told you the story of my good son being born, you would have been shocked, and I would have lost all credibility if I said, and so I wonder if he might live his whole life and never sin. The reality of sin in your life and on the streets and on down through the centuries makes sin one of the most obviously true facts of this world. And so when I spend an entire evening preaching on the goodness of God and His creation, I understand resistance. But when I talk about sin, there will be resistance too. As a matter of fact, maybe all semester there's going to be resistance. That I think actually now they're going in my head, the sermons, I think I may be. But especially in a culture of approval. But this is a better story than our culture of approval, our culture of denial. This is a better story, friends. Stick with me. The Bible begins with the good God making the good world, and just three pages in, it's gone awry. The crowning glory of God's creation is humanity, and he honored them by giving them the dignity of choice. He made them free creatures. The folks at the Bible Project, if you don't know about the Bible Project, get on it. It's the best Bible resource ever made. They picture the garden at thebibleproject.com. There you go. Okay. Um, you can Google, I assume. They, they, they picture the Garden of Eden as a party with the most amazing host. They're trying to think about how do we understand kind of what was going on in the opening pages of Scripture. This is a party where everyone is welcome, everyone is known, there's an abundance of food, there's an abundance of drink. And as a matter of fact, a whole party is just marked by abundance. But one person begins to wonder if the host is really that good, if maybe there won't be enough food, and so this guest starts shoving rolls into her pockets because maybe they're going to run out. I was at a conference this last weekend. I feel uniquely called out by this because in the concierge lounge where we got free, I got free food anyway, on the way out I'm stuffing my backpack with Cokes, you know, to take down the room because I don't know if I'll get any later. You know, and I feel called out by this metaphor, but this is the image that the Bible Project guys say. Imagine this happening at a big party where everything's great, and one person begins to act out of fear, and one person begins to panic a little, and one person begins to start stuffing their pockets with the dinner rolls. And another guest sees those rolls going away quickly and wants to make sure he gets some too, and a mentality of scarcity spreads through the camp, and the party quickly turns into a mob. The Garden of Eden goes from a garden of abundance to a garden of scarcity. Keely, would you throw that image up of the trees? Do you have that one? This is from an artist named Jim LePage. It's a bit hard to see, but there's a bunch of trees that are whitish or whatever, and there's one red one in the bottom right quadrant. It says Genesis. This is a, uh, an image he did called Genesis. And you'll notice a very circuitous route kind of cutting through all the trees. That, that the, 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 the biblical image of Genesis up until Genesis chapter 3 is this image of abundance of abundance. 
The whole earth is yours. The whole earth, every living thing, all the trees, the cosmos are yours, Adam and Eve. There is this one tree. Don't eat of it. And you'll notice in this picture this sort of route, like the clever ways to get to the forbidden fruit. Even though it's just one amongst a whole plethora of trees, we like the forbidden fruit. And every single one of us in our own ways knows that path. Adam and Eve were told that they would die if they ate that fruit, and the next few chapters unfold what that death looks like. What does that death look like? Because with their freedom, doubting the goodness of God, they disobey God, thinking they know better, and they take their lives into their own hands. It's why I hear this on the lips of Christians all the time who haven't read the Bible. It's not a very good thing to tell everybody to do what they think is best all the time. Again, we live in a culture of approval. And I'm quite certain that the things that I have thought are best throughout my life have led to train wrecks over and over and over again. But, but doing what they think is best and not trusting God, they take their lives into their own hands. But now, of course, they're trying to, to make goodness outside of the source of all goodness. And they see their vulnerability. We might say they were naked. And they feel ashamed. And shame, friends, is ever and always the mark of the fallen world. Always. Imagine a world where there's, I, I, I really think for today's culture, the, the image that John has in the book of Revelation, I really think in the end of, of Revelation chapter 21 or the beginning of 21, he might actually say, imagine a world where there's no more shame. Oh, maybe he does. Anyway, um, Shame is ever and always the mark of the fallen world, and they do what we all do when we feel ashamed. We hide. We hide. And they do what we all do when we're found out. They point their finger. And the good God does what He always does when the world is not as it should be. He enters into it. He says it will not always be like this, and He provides a way of rescue, which is next week. He promises that one day a child of Eve will conquer the evil one, Genesis 3.15. And whatever it means for them to die, the first thing that happens when they leave the garden is to conceive life. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. And you think maybe as a reader this will all be undone. We're looking for the seed of Eve. And here, God said they're going to die, but look, they just made life, maybe. But Cain... Their firstborn gardener, just like his dad, is envious of his younger brother and murders him. Sin, it seems, has spread to the children. Death begins unraveling. And in the grandchildren of Adam and Eve, we start to see polygamy and vengeance. And by the time we get to Genesis 6, we see this verse from Genesis 6. Maybe I didn't give you Genesis 6, 5, did I? Great. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We're just a few chapters into the story, the real story of God and you and the cosmos. Just a few chapters in and everything is touched by sin and death. Our relationship to God, our relationship to the earth, our relationship to each other, our relationship to ourselves is fractured and bent. And even after the flood and the restart in Genesis chapter 9, if you know the story, the seed of original sin comes off that boat and spreads again. Perhaps you've heard of original sin. 
referring to the fact that we are born in sin, that our, in, our intrinsic goodness is bent. C.S. Lewis, picking up language from Genesis, says that the whole world is under a nasty spell, and what we need is to have the curse lifted or the curse unwoven. And so even when I beheld my firstborn son and I knew of his unshakable goodness, I knew too that he was touched by sin. That it isn't just the world which is broken, the hurricanes and the floods and the fires, and it isn't just others who will harm him, as if it were so easy to draw a line between good and evil. I knew that I too would harm him in some way. But the most heartbreaking thing of all is that this little one I knew would harm me and others as well. The seed of sin was alive in him, and I beheld at the same time his goodness and his fallenness. And I saw in him what I knew to be true in me, and it's true in you. King David, this man after God's heart, talked about it like this. We read this earlier. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Our sermon series is called A Better Story. And the question, of course, is how does un the unraveling of death and brokenness in the world through sin help me understand a better story? Have you ever been broken up with and not understood why? Have you ever been sick and no one can tell you what's wrong? Perhaps you can imagine how unbelievably lonely and frustrating and incomprehensible the world is in those moments. Sin is, in one sense, the diagnosis for all that's wrong with the world. I know that we resist the notion that we're sinners. I know that. But it is the only sober explanation for the world we inhabit and for the way we inhabit it. And acknowledging sin means not that the world is bad or that you are bad, but that you are good and bent. And the world is good and bent. Or to use biblical words, cursed or in bondage. Friends, why is your relationship with God frustrated? Look, I'm not a wizard. I don't know exactly what everybody in this room is thinking. Preachers don't come up here because they have special insight into everybody else's. Th I believe that the story that God has told us about all of the world is actually true for you and me. Your, I know that your relationship with God has some frustration in it. I know that your relationship with others has some frustration in it. I know that your relationship with yourself has some frustration in it. Well, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, there's like a million of them, but one of them is from 1 John chapter 3, where, where, and I'll, we'll talk about John in just a little bit too, and another passage, actually the same letter, actually the same letter. But in 1 John chapter 3, John talks about how, how just great the love of God is, right? But he makes this comment, and I hope to tell you about it often. He talks about how that we in Jesus are adopted as his children, as God's children, but that we don't see Jesus as he is yet. So first of all, that's really encouraging for me, 
Because I have this belief sometimes uh, when I see the, what looks like the just sheer confidence of others that they just know Jesus perfectly. And it's really encouraging for me to see one of Jesus' best friends and disciples and a guy who authored some books of the Bible say, we don't see Jesus fully for who he is yet, but we will one day. And then he says this, and this is so remarkable. When we see him for who he is, then we'll see ourselves for who we are. And so there's also this admission that I don't even know myself fully yet. And if that's true about you and me, then I can confidently say your relationship with yourself is a bit frustrated. That you don't know yourself fully. It's one of the reasons why y'all geek out about things like Enneagrams or whatever else. I do, I do too. I'm not trying to throw you under the bus. This is true about all of us, okay? M- maybe this is who I am. I, I, I love the idea that, that in John's vision, uh, uh, we call it the revelation of John. It's the revelation he was given at the end of the Bible. John has this vision where God gives his people, each of them, new names, and it's such an encouraging thing for me because there's this sense of home and being known in it that acknowledges the frustration that exists now. And what a doctrine of sin or or an understanding of sin and the reality of sin does is it helps me to make sense of the frustration with God, the frustration with you, and the frustration with me. Or maybe you think it's just you alone. That you're like the only one. That everybody else has got it. If we don't believe sin and you think everybody's actually fine and everybody else can just do their own thing, You do you is fine for anybody else. Approval's great for anybody else. Anybody else can do anything they want, but not me. Friends, may it never be, may you never feel that alone amongst Christians. Ever. Each week when we gather, we confess that we have sinned and we are only here by grace. Next week when when somebody from the prayer team leads us in a prayer before we begin to respond to God in song, I want you to listen to that prayer. They're actually praying on your behalf, so you probably should listen. We confess that we're sinners saved by grace because it's true. And in confessing it, we come out of hiding and we look around and we find solidarity with others in this room. We can stop posturing and stop pretending and we can breathe easier because we're not alone and God is for us in Jesus Christ. Amen? I want you to do something right now because I want to call you out of isolation. I want you to look at someone next to you in just a second. I want you to tell them the truth. I think self-talk is incredibly important. It's actually biblical. But because of how God has made us, it's easier to believe someone else than it is to believe ourselves. I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together has has an amazing page or two exploring that idea. He talks about how God has these riddles of the gospel all over the world, and one of the echoes or riddles of the gospel, one of the echoes is a good word, echoes of the gospel is that that, that he says, God has placed his word into the mouths of, uh, uh, into your mouth in order that you might speak it to others. And he's placed his word in the mouths of others in order that they might speak it to you. And often we're just trying to speak to ourselves, and that's helpful. Often we, we don't, I should say this, the biblical self-talk is, is a redeemed, upright self-talk, not a self-condemning, accusatory talk. There's a redemptive way that you're supposed to speak to yourself. Things like David, what David said when he said, why are you downcast, O my soul? That's great self-talk. And not accusing. Ask the actual question. Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Do you not know who God is? That's great stuff. But there is a power that comes from somebody else speaking words like that to us. And so so I want you to speak the truth to each other. Because it's a tremendous kindness to speak the truth to one another. And you can help someone believe the truth by speaking the truth. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn somebody next to you and take turns at the same time. I don't care. But I want you to look somebody in the freaking face 
and I want you to say, God loves you. Say that. Now, go. It's just three words. God loves you too, brother. All right, now listen, listen. I want you to look to that same person back and forth, and I want you to say you're a sinner. <gasps> In English, that sounds like a snake hissing. Isn't that interesting? I never thought about that. It sounds like, it's just, oh, wow. English, they spoke Hebrew. Never mind. I don't know what that is in Hebrew. All right, now I want you to look at that same person again, and I want you to say God loves you. All right, all right, let's finish this up. Come on back, come on back. Every single one of us, friends, every single one of us in this room, no matter how much we throw encouragement or accolades or affirmation or enthusiasm on each other, when the world gets quiet and we are left alone without distraction and we are present with just ourselves, we know that things are not as they should be. It's probably one of the reasons why we distract ourselves so much. And the problems with the world are, aren't just out there. They're in here, in here. Jesus would tell us that our sin comes from the inside of us. David, in the psalm we read tonight, asked God for a new heart and a new spirit to cleanse him from within. But we spend so much energy pretending like we're not sinners. I think back, I used a, 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 a movie clip, one of the only times I've ever used a movie clip at the house, a number of years ago from a tremendous TV show called, um, called uh, Russian Spies. What's it called? Living in the U.S.? Anybody know? I don't know. It's about Russian Spies living in the U.S. It's a fascinating show, but obviously if I can't tell you the name. <laughs> uh, but there's this, the daughter of these Russian spies at one point uh, begins to be really captivated by this preacher, this Christian preacher, and, and she brings this preacher and her friend home to the dinner table, and they're all sitting around, and she wants to drop the news on them that she wants to get baptized. And after the daughter goes to bed and the preacher leaves, the parents lose the dang minds in the kitchen. And, the, and this, the woman in the show, the protagonist, she throws her plate in the sink, and she says, so she wants to make herself clean for Jesus. And it struck me when I watched that, that that is what the world thinks we believe. That we make ourselves clean for Jesus? That, that you're a Christian or I'm a Christian because I got my stuff together? Cleanse me from within, God. We spend so much energy pretending like we're not sinners that, that TV shows have lines like that and nobody flinches except for a preacher. We call our sin mistakes and accidents. Or we say things like, that's just not me. Yes, it is. Nobody else did it. Nobody else thinks that way. Nobody else felt that way. That is you. We, like Adam and Eve, hide. We, like Adam and Eve, point fingers. And we wear ourselves out and isolate ourselves from any real intimacy because we are not telling the true story of our lives. Friends, we don't live up to our own standards, let alone God's. In acknowledging sin, we understand why we and the world are broken. We know why we have a heartache and longing. We know why we're homesick. We know the answer to, to the riddle ringing in our bones is that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. 
and there is a great shepherd who will go after each and every one of us. Christians are not Christians because they have not sinned. (laughs) Christians are Christians because they have confessed their sin and admit freely that they are saved by grace alone and the love of Jesus. That's actually not even correct. Christians are Christians because of Jesus. And so one of the most common prayers throughout church history is not, Lord, thank you that we are not like them. Other than the Lord's Prayer, the most common prayer throughout church history is, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. The full prayer actually comes from a parable Jesus told where a man says, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. It's a willingness to acknowledge what's wrong with the world and call upon the Lord for help. Friends, if you are unwilling to acknowledge that sin is a reality in this world, you will be lost and alone and the world will be incomprehensible to you. If you are unwilling to acknowledge sin as a reality about you, you will be lost and alone and you will be incomprehensible to yourself. However, if you can be honest about sin, you know why you and the cosmos are not as they should be, And because of Jesus, the author and perfecter of everything, there is hope for something better, and I believe that is a better story. I do not believe that if we just, I'm I'm all for, and I hope you heard this last week, I, I really think Christians should be on the front lines of caring for the earth. But we are frail and limited creatures. I'm not quite convinced that we're gonna be able to stop hurricanes. Christians should be on the front lines of all the compassionate work in the world, and yet Jesus says the poor will always be with you. I I, I really, I I believe that sin is so pervasive and deep a problem that that one of the, the ringing prayers that should be on my mind and in my heart and on my lips is, Come, Lord Jesus. Because I don't believe that the problems are just so small that we can vote the right person into office and all the problems will be fixed. Or if I just spend a little bit less or spend a little bit more, then everything's going to be okay. I believe that my identity is going to be frustrated until I see the glory of the Lord face to face. And so I I love the, the pursuit. I love the maturity. I love the growth that comes from something like an Enneagram. I really do. But I do not think the Enneagram is going to solve all of this. Recognizing sin, it actually gives me the categories to say, oh, this is, this is the theology, this is the understanding, this is the word, this is the concept, this is the reality that helps me to understand why the world is not as it should be, why I am not as I should be, why my relationship with God is not as it should be. And because Jesus tackles sin head on, I have hope for something better. Next week, we're going to talk about rescue about the actual hope for something better, about the exodus, about our exodus. But tonight, as we prepare to come to the communion table, I want to read to you the words of John again from 1 John chapter 1. He says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, friends. Anybody in this room that is a professed Christian has acknowledged that they are a sinner, So you can let your guard down, which doesn't mean they won't hurt you because they're a sinner. But you can stop pretending. Part of what it means to come to the table every week when we gather is is, is actually an embodied uh, telling of that story. 
of the God for us who's broken for us on our behalf. We'll get to that. He follows up that line by saying, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, the author and perfecter of all things knows the truth about you and me and he offers himself to you. I pray that you respond to him and I pray that you come out of hiding. I pray that you stop pointing your fingers. I pray that you're healed from shame. I pray that hope rises up within you and it dominates all the fear and anxiety that you feel and you have courage to move forward, that you have a name for your homesickness that y'all have, and that you find that Jesus has located that in himself and in the new heavens and the new earth, but we're going to get to that at the end of the semester. For now, let me pray for you, and then we'll take a minute of silence before we come to the table. Father, send your Spirit to be among us. You promise, Lord, that when, when two or more are gathered in your name that you are with us in a unique way, and, and, and I pray for this moment, will you cover us with grace and, and let, us to be, let us be honest with ourselves about the ways in which we experience the brokenness and fallenness of the world that we call sin. And because it is the Spirit's work to convict us of sin, Father, for anybody in this room that feels convicted, may, they be, may there be a resounding hope that any conviction means that the God of all creation is drawn close and is not far. Lord, help us in our resistances to you. Help us to, to open our eyes and have sober thoughts and to not speak untruths to each other, but to speak truth. And through your word, through prayer, through the actions of the church, through angels unaware, I don't care, will you help each and every one of us to know that the hound of heaven is after us and we won't get away.